thank you to everyone. Uh, you'll notice we're using a wired mic this morning. Um, for some reason, our wireless mics are not working, and we think it has something to do with the prince of the power of the air, so, uh, or just technology in general. So we're praying uh, that God would still speak this morning, even though I got to stand in one spot, but that's all right. Um, and then also, you probably noticed something on my head, and it's this, this is just a, a way to get you to have pity on bald people. Because when we move around, we don't have an early warning system called hair, or I didn't have my hat on when I was doing it, and uh, you have a little bit of padding, folks, if you have hair on your head, okay? So you just get the direct hit when you're, when you're bald, and so it wasn't as bad as it looks, <laughs> I guess I'm saying. It's one of those things that it's going to be a distraction, though, so I want to get rid of the distraction. Don't just stare at my head, okay? All right. So this morning, uh, we're going to get to Matthew 28, but I'm going to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 3. So we're going to move to the next gospel uh, and spend some time there. And there's a story in this gospel that that we don't often notice. And it's a story, it's a story about family. Uh, And not just about family in general, but about family competitions. So, So when I say the word family competitions, you probably know what I mean. Um, that moment, if you have kids, as your kids are growing up and they just love you, they think you're the best, the smartest, the most amazing, the most handsome or beautiful person in the world, and you can do no wrong. And then all of a sudden your kids begin to grow and then there's that day when they want to spend every waking hour with their friends or go to their friend's house instead of be at home. And all of a sudden, as a parent, you go, you go, hold on, what's wrong with us? You know, like, um, and there, there begins to be maybe a little bit of jealousy, maybe a little bit of competition going on as you realize, oh, our, our kids are, are growing up and they're expanding out. There's other people in their world now. Or I haven't had this experience yet. Um, Caleb's not getting married anytime soon, I don't think. That was a surprise to me. Um, but when you, your kids get even older and they start to get married, right, and, and, and they, they begin to gravitate towards this other person. And they also, this other person usually comes with a family, right? So there's, there can be this competition between the in-laws. Like, who are the cool in-laws? Like, who are the in-laws that you want to spend Christmas with? And, oh, you spent last Christmas with them, though. Hold on a second, you know? And so there, there begins to be this competition even in, in that way. So that's what I mean when I say family competition. It's a competition in a sense of loyalty, where are your loyalties? Where are your affections? And that um, competition, that, that sense of loyalty and affection can often run really deep. And early on in Jesus' ministry, here in Mark chapter 3, um, the, the context here is that Jesus was really starting to become very, very popular. And he was going about the countryside, all these little towns, and he started doing these pretty amazing things like healing people and casting out demons and cleansing lepers, and and he's doing all these things, and he's beginning to attract a crowd. He's becoming kind of this rural, uh, prophetic, miracle worker. So here's the scene, if you will, in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 12, and I'm just going to turn my phone off and not even try to do the Apple TV, so we're going way old school today. So here's the scene, Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 7. Follow along with me. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, 
And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. So they're, they're coming from everywhere, miles around. People are coming to see Jesus. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So the scene is a little bit chaotic. It's, it's crazy. You can imagine this huge crowd. Like if you've ever been at a professional football game or, or Disneyland in the busy season or, or New York City, in the middle of the day, you know, it's just, it's busy. It's shoulder to shoulder bumping. Everybody's around. There's all these people. And Jesus, this crowd is there because Jesus has kind of become a celebrity of sorts. And, is, and, and he has this group of guys called disciples. And at this point, there could be dozens, maybe even hundreds of these people who have begun to follow him and who identify as, a, as disciples. So they're following him, they're traveling with him, they're learning from him, they're helping him out in different ways. And in this story, he even like, takes these guys and he says, hey, get me a boat and make sure uh, I've got an escape route so that I don't get crushed or, or pushed into the, or into the sea here or something like that. So if you will, these people are beginning to become Jesus's people, his, his team, his family, if you will. And like Mark does in his gospel, um, suddenly the scene changes. Okay? He does this all the time. It's like suddenly this happens, suddenly this happens. He's just very fast-paced, moves along. Um, in the very next verse, verse 13, we're, we were at the seaside, right? And he's being crushed by these people. Then all of a sudden in verse 13, he's at the mountain. Okay? So, so for some reason, he couldn't find respite at the at the sea because of all these people. And now he goes to a mountain. So the scene changes and he's with his disciples, probably still with the crowd up on the mountain. And it says in verse 13 that when he was on the mountain, he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And then the text goes on to name these 12 guys that he calls apostles and that he appoints. Um, And this group of people in that day would have really been an unlikely team. I mean, we read their names today and we think, oh, yeah, you know, it's Andrew and Peter and James and John. These guys are are famous because they were Jesus' followers, his apostles, his disciples. We call them saints now. Um, But what they were in the day was a kind of a motley group of people, four commercial fishermen. I mean, dudes that smell like fish all the time, okay? You've got a, a tax collector who, in that day and age, a tax collector was a traitor. He was a Jew who was working for the Romans and, and making money off of his own people, even stealing from them. And that's Matthew. So, so one who's working for the Romans, treated as a traitor by his people. And then you have... Um, What's his name? His name is Simon in verse 18. Simon the Canaanian. Uh, to be a Canaanian basically means that you were a zealot. And a zealot was a political rat- radical who hated the Romans and hated people that worked for the Romans. So these guys are now on the same team with Jesus. So you have this 
crazy group of, uh, of people, including Judas Iscariot, right? And we know Judas Iscariot, he's just the worst, isn't he? You know, so all these, all these guys, just this crazy group of guys, this was not the A-team. Like, you wouldn't go uh, on, you know, you wouldn't go on the playground and pick these guys first. These guys would be the one, the rabble that was left over afterwards by any stretch of the imagination, not the A-team. Um, it would be like Jesus today picking a team, and he, he, grabs a, he goes to the corner and grabs a few day laborers. And, he, and then he goes down the DMV and gets a government employee. Sorry, sorry, Dean, that was a, that was a shot. At, um, or maybe the Forest Service or something like that, I don't know. He goes and gets the local head of the Democratic Party, a transgender activist, an attorney, maybe a couple of UPS drivers, and a couple of Baptists. Pulls them all together and says, this is my team. The language here, too, is really kind of intimate. It says in the verse that Jesus desired them. Not in some weird way, but these are guys who he wanted to be with him. He wanted them. He chose them. He wanted them to be on his team. They were, to Jesus, the first string. This this was his A team. These were the starters. And he personally chose them, in particular, it says, to be with him to be with him, to spend time with him, to do life on life, to always be together. So it wasn't just a part-time thing. He had handpicked these guys to be his companions, to be his team. You could even say he chose them to be his family. And his family then, he began to teach them the family trade. He says, you know what? If you're going to be my family, I'm going to show you and have you do the exact same things I do. So I'm going to have you go out and preach the gospel and I'm going to have you go out and heal people, and I'm going to have you go out and cast out demons out of people. But catch what happens next, because it's, it's really interesting. In verse 20, it says, Then he went home, which was probably to Capernaum, not to Nazareth. He went home, and it says, The crowd gathered again, so here's all these people back again, so that they could not even eat. So we have a scene of chaos, and then in the middle of that chaos, we have him picking these 12 guys, and then it goes back to this chaos. In the the first section, he almost got crushed. In the second section, he can't even eat. And it's almost like in the middle of this chaos that Mark gives us, he, he calls a huddle. He says, okay, team, come on in. We're calling a huddle. He pulls in his guys. He gives them his assignments. He draws in his chosen team, draws them close to himself, and then they turn back around and head right back into the chaos. And then we read this even more interesting verse, and it's perhaps a verse that you've never even noticed before. It's verse 21. It says this. This is the ESV translation. It says, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, some of your translations may not use the word family there. It's not actually the word family. It's, the word is, when his own people, that's a literal translation, when his own people or his associates or his family heard it, they went out to seize him. So it could possibly refer to a number of different people, um, but likely, I think it does refer to his family because mainly, mainly, for the reason that in 10 verses, his family is going to show up again, coming to look for him. But no matter who this verse refers to, we know that these are people who are close to him, who know him, 
who love him, who are invested in him. They have some kind of ownership with him, some kind of relationship. And they hear something about something. It doesn't, it's not real clear what they hear. And they draw a conclusion from what they hear that we need to go get this guy and take him home because he's gone crazy. Okay? So what, is, what exactly do they hear? Well, there's a couple of options. The verse says, when his family heard it, we don't know what. Potentially, they just heard about all this Jesus mania that was going on. Like if you, if you watch old videos, I wasn't alive back then, but Beatlemania. Does anybody remember Beatlemania? Okay. Were you guys there? Fainting? No. You know, people fainting, you know, just crazy stuff going on. But this is kind of this Jesus mania that was sweeping Galilee, and it was threatening not only to kill him, like they were going to crush him, he couldn't even eat, but you can just hear his mom saying, if this boy's not careful, he's going to get himself hurt. I'm going to go get him and get him out of that situation. Perhaps they were even thinking, you know, with all these crowds, with all this attention, maybe they're even hearing rumors that Herod is, is interested in Jesus or that the political or religious leaders in Jerusalem are interested in Jesus and they don't want him to get on the wrong people's radar. That is, that's potentially what they heard. But, but there's another possible scenario that suggests itself here. Is it possible that Jesus' family had heard a report in the midst of all of this mania that Jesus had publicly handpicked a ragtag group of losers, loners, misfits, outcasts, and made them into his inner circle of disciples? And when they heard who he had picked, they just couldn't believe it. He must be out of his mind. How could he possibly associate with those kind of people? Those aren't our people. We raised him better than this. He's out of his mind. And I wonder if this interpretation is correct, mainly because of what takes place starting in verse 31. So look ahead to verse 31. Here's what it said. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, he's in a house here, he's in a building, and uh, there's a crowd around him, and his, his family gets there. They can't even get to him. There's so many people. Standing outside, they send to him and called him. So basically, they tell people, hey, we're Jesus' family. Will you let him know that we're here? And the message again gets passed through the crowd. And it says, a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And the word seeking there throughout the book of Mark carries with it the same kind of connotation that the word sees in verse 21 carries. His family thought he was crazy, so they went to seize him. That word actually can also be translated arrest. Like they wanted to go put, put handcuffs on him and take it home. They came seeking him. They came seeking to grab him. And the idea is that those who were close to Jesus wanted to control him. They thought he was out of control. They wanted to control him. They intended to stop him from doing what he was doing. And here's the family competition. Jesus' family was highly concerned. They may have even been scandalized by this rabble that he was now associating himself with. And now their worst fears get responded because check out how Jesus responds to them in verse 33. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my 
brother and sister and mother. And you can imagine his mom and his brother standing outside just feeling like they just got smacked across the face. When their son and their brother declares that intimate association with him, being part of his family, isn't based on blood ties, it's based on obedient faith. So just being on the inside or having the correct ancestry isn't enough to be a part of God's family. Jesus radically redefines family and loyalty. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, he says this. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The gospel of Luke will, will say that same thing, but actually use the word hate and add that into the equation. In Luke chapter 14. So Jesus means to shake us out of kind of our safe and happy family categories. But why? Why does, why does Jesus do this? Is, is Jesus anti-family? I mean, we live in a culture where you can almost watch the family break down. You can almost watch the, 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 the nuclear family fall apart before our very eyes. And you, you read this and you go, well, hold on, doesn't... Doesn't God love families? Aren't they the key to healthy and flourishing societies? Aren't, aren't healthy and, and strong families crucial for the welfare and the flourishing of children? Is Jesus encouraging, is he really encouraging us to abandon our blood and leave them high and dry? Is he commanding us to not love our families, to break ties with them like like so many cults do, right? That's what a cult does, is they break ties with everyone you know and never talk to them again. Is that what Jesus is, is doing? Well, no. I think from his track record and looking at the rest of the scriptures, that's not Jesus' point here. Jesus agrees that family is important. In fact, he's the one that created the family, for crying out loud. But he's also saying that family, nuclear, biological family, is not everything and like anything like anything it can become an idol it can become something that we put before God in our heart it can be something we put before God in our life but when we love our families more than we love God we do everyone a disservice including God ourselves and our family and it's only when we remove our family or any idol it could be your career it could be your money. It could be, um, I don't know, it could be a sports team. It could be a hobby. Whatever that idol is that you have put above God, when you remove that from its sacred shrine and situate it where it's supposed to be, then everything else becomes right when God gets the throne. You see, when that happens, God is honored because he's treated as God. Our personal world is in order. And then we actually do a service to our family by taking the mantle of being God off of them. Because that mantle is too heavy for our family and loved ones to carry. They can't carry being God for us. They don't need to. They weren't intended to. But I think Jesus is also saying something more here, that there is actually a more important family than our biological or our nuclear families. In fact, I would argue the main, the main metaphor that Jesus uses in the scriptures to, and, and that the scriptures use to describe the church is as the family 
of God. So this month we've been looking at different metaphors of the church, the bride of Christ and the body of Christ and the temple of the Holy Spirit. And today it's the, the idea of being the family of God. And it begins with the idea that through Jesus, those who believe in him are adopted as sons and daughters of a heavenly father. So Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5 where, where Paul says, in love, God the Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 8, verse 14, again in Galatians chapter 4, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. We are all by faith adopted into a new family, into the family of God. And Jesus calls us brothers and sisters, and he's not ashamed to do so. Even, he even took on flesh so that we could become part of his family. Ephesians 2 tells us that we're members now of the household of God. We're part of the household of faith, according to Galatians chapter 6. And our identity as God's family is not just something theoretical, right? It's not something that we go on Ancestry.com and we think, we, we like, oh man, I was, I was related to the third duke of the second duchy in the Netherlands back in the 1400s. That's amazing. Okay, that's, that's theoretical. That's interesting. But it really doesn't make an effect on my life today. So this isn't just theoretical knowledge like, yeah, I've got a half-sister out in Florida that I've never met. When the writers of the New Testament refer to one another as a family, they speak in very affectionate terms, very intimate terms. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, Philippians 1, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Can you... Can you hear the affection and the intimacy and the love that Paul has for his brothers and sisters in Christ? 1 Thessalonians 2. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. That's the picture of of a family that we've been brought into in Jesus Christ. Now, We live in a fallen world, and chances are pretty high that your family is somewhere on a spectrum of dysfunction, okay, from modest to severe. You've likely been affected by divorce. Your family's likely been affected by remarriage. Your family's been affected by death of a loved one perhaps by abuse or, or any other number of ways a family can be damaged or re- rearranged. So for some of you, thinking of your, of your family, when I say family, it might uh, bring up kind of traumatic or troubling or disturbing memories or emotions. Or perhaps you have no family at all. Maybe you have no family to speak of and you're completely alone in the world. On the other side of this, perhaps your family is, to you, the most important part of who you are. You can't think of yourself without thinking of yourself in relation to your family. You can't imagine being without them. You might be married and have kids. You might have grandkids or even great-grandkids. Or maybe you're divorced or maybe remarried. Maybe you're part of a mixed family or a reshuffled family. Maybe your family seems to multiply. Your families seem to multiply as, as your parents step out of or into various 
relationships. Maybe you're single. Maybe you're alone. And maybe you long for a family more than anything. And no matter what your, your individual experience, no matter what your understanding of family, the gospel of Jesus Christ meets every single one of us where we are at and transforms us by faith into fully vested sons and daughters, into beloved heirs of the wealthiest, uh, the most kind, good, and loving father in the universe. Every one of us who believe in Christ. And on top of this, we receive a ragtag group of brothers and sisters who are tied to us not by blood, not by the blood of our ancestors, but by the blood of Christ. And so brothers and sisters, and when I say brothers and sisters, I call you that very intentionally. Brothers and sisters, what wonderful news the gospel is. That through Christ, we are given an instant family. You are no longer alone. You belong without questions. Brothers and sisters, we are family. Let me ask you this question and have you do something. I want you to look around at your family not just those that are related to you. Look around at those sitting in this room. Maybe some people that you know, maybe some people you know well, maybe some people you love to be with, maybe some people you don't want to hang out with, maybe some people you've never met. Look around at the people sitting in this room, and let me ask you this. How would it change your mind? How would it change your attitudes your relationships, if you were to see those sitting next to you in the pew, not as strangers, not as acquaintances, not even as good friends, but as brothers, sister, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, what it, would it mean for us to look at our brothers and sisters in Christ and actually see them as family. What would that do? How would that change us? Okay, now, what does all of this have to do with making disciples? Because if you've been with us through January, we've been walking through these metaphors of the church, looking at who we are and connecting each one of those metaphors to one of our core values as a church, of being word-centered, of being radically dependent, of being generously loving, and today, of making disciples. So what does being the family of God have to do with making disciples? Well, it's not just enough to know that we are family. It's not just enough to believe that we belong and that we're called to love one another as brothers and sisters, as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. This is this is the reality we are made a part of when we're, when we're born again into God's family. But we also have to ask, what is family for? What's the purpose? What are we supposed to do? Is it just for belonging? Is it just for a relationship, as important that, as that is? Or is there another essential part of being a family that is crucial for us to grasp and own and lean into as God's family? Well, if you go back to the very beginning when God created family in the creation story, he created mankind in his image, male and female he created them. And the first command he gave them was this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
So as we look at how God designed families, we see that multiplication is a crucial creation design of families. Families are meant to grow through reproduction, to create small, beautiful, unique reproductions of of mom and dad. We call them babies, okay? Children. Now, granted, not every family reproduces, okay? Not every family is able to do that. Not every family has children. Not every human is a part of a family or part of a marriage like that. Not every person will get married. Not every person is part of that biological production. And you're no less a part of God's beloved human creation if that's the case for you. But that doesn't make reproduction any less of a design of families. That's part of the design. It doesn't happen all the way for all, all the same way for all of us, but it's part of his design for the family. Now, if the church is the family of God, then we too are to reproduce in like kind. And that's not a biological reality, that's a spiritual reality. We're talking about spiritual reproduction. This is a reality that our resurrected Savior explains to us clearly in his last words. According to the Gospels of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, these are the last words that a resurrected Jesus spoke before he ascended, and he says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, somebody rises from the dead, and then he tells you that he has all authority in heaven and earth. You should probably listen to him. You should probably believe him. And you should probably take what he says as important. Okay? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Go and reproduce. People from all tribes, every tongue, every people, every nation, make disciples, reproduce yourselves, and then baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Pull them in, baptize them, immerse them in the life of the family of God. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit into the church, and then teach them what it means to be part of my family. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So making disciples is the family of God's way of being fruitful and multiplying. And so the task given to us by a once dead, now alive God-man, which makes it a pretty important task, if I think about it, is for us as his, brother, his little brothers and sisters to go out to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people group and call more people to be part of his family, raise them up in the family likeness to look more and more like Jesus, and send them out to do the work that Jesus' family is supposed to do, which is to go make more disciples. And so today, for some of us, we need to hear that invitation The invitation is simply to come to the family, to come to a good heavenly father who loves us, who made us, who wants us to be his, to come to an older brother who has given his life for ours, who's paid for our sins so that we by faith might now become children of God. All that takes is faith and repentance, turning away from your sin and turning towards Christ and asking for forgiveness. Would you become a son and daughter today? I'd invite you to become a son or daughter today. Some of us, though, 
We are, we are part of the family, and we simply need to repent from making our families an idol and reorient ourselves to the family of faith, not abandoning our family, but remembering that this family of God is more real, more important, and even more eternal than our biological or nuclear families. And most of us need to either be reminded to to wake up to this fact for the first time that Jesus has asked us to make disciples. We need to wake up to that fact or we need to be reminded of of our job description to reproduce, to multiply, to invest our lives in others that they too might grow up into the family likeness and might be sent out to labor in the family business of making disciples. So the question for each of us today is, how do you need to respond? Will you pray with me? Our Father, we do come and we call you Father. You're a good Father. You're a loving Father. You are our Father. Jesus even said it. When you pray, pray to our Father. I am going to my Father and your Father. Jesus, we thank you for being the elder big brother who took on our sin, paid for it, and has has gone before us as the chief disciple maker, as the chief heir of the kingdom, and as heirs of the kingdom, and sons and daughters of the king, God, we want to live this kingdom way of making disciples. So Father, in our mind, we sit in a room today, we, we, we go about in relationships, and oftentimes we think of friends, we think of acquaintances, but when we think of family, we really think of our family, our people. And yet here we have an instant family, the family of God that we've been born again into. And, and Father, I pray that you would make First Baptist Church a true, loving family of God. That we would reflect the relationships that you want us to reflect in this world. And God, that we would be a people that make disciples, that reproduce, that bring people to know Jesus and raise them up to follow him and make more disciples. Would you do your work through us, we pray. We thank you that we could come and worship today. We thank you that we could hear the word and and be convicted, be encouraged. And I pray for Jonas and this team as they continue to lead us, Lord. Would you you draw our hearts to you, and may you get the praise, honor, and glory in your name. Amen. Amen. If you guys could stand and um, worship with us, that would be awesome.